Well, please turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, Titus 2. And we want you to be able to see what we're talking about from the Bible, from Titus 2, so the guys have some Bibles. If you need one, get their attention, and they'll get one to you. You can keep that Bible as your own. We want everybody to own one. And it is marked. Those Bibles are marked at Titus chapter 2. In the history of Christianity, it has almost always been counter-cultural. Now when I say counter-cultural, I mean that Christianity and the behavior that flows from it are against the cultural tide. As many of you have heard me say many times, Christians are different. They march to the beat of a different drummer. Now, I said, though, that Christianity has almost always been countercultural. I was born in 1962, the early part, so you can do the math. I was born in 62, just prior to the beginning of a cultural revolution that would take place in the mid and late 60s and on into the 70s. And as a result, I grew up in a very different culture from that of my parents. And as I would hear them talk about the way it was, and as I've read about the 40s and the 50s, I've found myself asking, where are you, Ozzie and Harriet? You know, you look at pictures from those days, and you see things like people dressed up to go to baseball games. Now, I don't have any desire to wear a suit to a baseball game, or really much uh, anyplace else. But if the choice is between guys who can't keep their pants around their waist and wearing suits everywhere, I'll go with the suit. The nostalgia for those more orderly and genteel times was heard in the opening song to a popular 70s sitcom. Some of you will remember All in the Family. They would start out, Archie and Edith singing, Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. Didn't need no welfare state. Everybody pulled his weight. Gee, our old LaSalle ran great. Those were the days. And then it goes on to say, And you knew who you were then. Girls were girls. And men were men. People got married, and the vast majority stayed married. If you mentioned the word gay back in those days, or gay marriage, they would have had absolutely no idea what you were speaking of, and once they found out, you'd be soundly condemned. If you said the President of the United States would endorse such a thing, you'd probably be laughed to scorn. But here we are. Welcome, friends, to the latest step toward continual progress. As MSNBC says, lean forward. And as one of the political campaigns is going to have as its theme this year, it's just forward. Lean forward. Always forward. But have you ever thought of this? Forward means 
away from something else and into a future of really who knows what. So I would caution as you lean forward and you say always forward and progress is always different. Be very, very careful. I just find myself shaking my head in disbelief more and more at what we think is progress and what we think is good for us. But as I shake my head in almost disbelief, the truth is I really shouldn't be all that surprised because Christianity is almost always counter-cultural. The truth is it's the exception rather than the rule when Christian ethics are in vogue. And the few times in history that they have been, it has been and it always will be temporary. Because there's always in the human heart the desire for autonomy. You know what that is, self-rule. We tire quickly of what we think is the straight jacket of righteousness because our hearts are not in it. Much too confining for those of us who want to be autonomous, self-governing, ruling ourselves our own way. And where the Christian sees only one choice, the non-Christian sees an unlimited array of choices, and he wants to try them all. I recently read the difference illustrated this way. The only reason devils tell us we have a choice in matters of righteousness is because evil invents not-choices or anti-choices. Wicked alternatives to the only real way to go. If we were without sin, we would follow God without thinking of not following God. Because not following God is a perversion of the way to go. It's not an equal alternative to it. Doing right or doing wrong is not the same thing as choosing chocolate or vanilla. Doing right is the only course. And doing wrong is a perversion of that course. It's a lie. It's a fabrication. These are not equal choices. I go on in the quote. A blind man walks off the side of a bridge over a chasm because he's blind. But when he sees, he avoids the edge of the bridge. Now, you might conceivably say he has a choice in the matter. But the fact is that any rational adult avoids walking off the edge of the bridge and does not deliberate over the matter in terms of two equal choices. He knows there's only one way to go and anything else is destruction. He doesn't see the bridge as a presentation of two choices. Either walk off the side of it or walk on it. He sees the bridge as the way safely over the chasm. And in doing so, he hasn't lost his freedom of the will. Rather, he's gained his sight, and he's using it appropriately. He sees and he acts according to the truth of what he sees. So here we are. In the natural antithesis between Christianity and the prevailing culture in 2012... America. Christianity is almost always countercultural, 
And if you're going to live as a Christian today, exemplifying biblical values, you're going to be increasingly against the grain. But here's the good news. It's always been this way. (laughs) Even in biblical times. I've asked you to turn to Titus. And in Titus chapter 1, in verse 11, Titus speaks of rebellious talkers and teachers. Now notice the word, it's rebellious. The rebelling against the order, the confinements, the straitjacket as they see it. Wanting to be autonomous, they teach that way. To the destruction, Titus goes on to say, of many households. Destroying households. And people blindly follow. Titus is told there needs to be an antidote to this, an answer to this. In chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul tells Titus, he says, I left you in Crete to set things in order, appointing elders, that is pastors, in each of the towns on the island of Crete. And in contrast now to those who are these rebellious talkers and teaching these destructive things, These teachers are to teach something diametrically opposed. And not only are teachers of truth needed, but he's going to go on to say to Titus that truth has to be lived out, counter to the rest of the culture. And so verse 1 of chapter 2 begins this way. You must teach. But there are actually some words in Greek the original language in which your New Testament was written. There are actually some words before you must teach. It actually says this, but as for you, you must teach. Now that but as for you is on purpose. And so it's unfortunate that the NIV hasn't put that in. But as for you is to show the stark contrast between the rebellious talkers who are destructive in chapter 1 and the countercultural teaching and lifestyle of Christianity in chapter 2. But as for you, in contrast to that, you're to teach and model something completely different. And what Titus is told to teach that's going to show the contrast between Christianity and false teaching. I mean, what's it going to be? This is momentous stuff. This is big stuff. You've got the contest between competing worldviews here and how the world works. And is it always forward and lean forward and progress and try new stuff and every choice is a good choice? And all change is good change? Let's move forward? Out of the straitjacket of righteousness and into autonomy... And in the competition between that worldview and the worldview of Christianity, what is it that Titus is told to teach? Well, verse two, chapter 2 centers our attention on, believe it or not, basic domestic household responsibilities. That means on Mother's Day, a Christian wife who follows what Jesus says, 
is making a very countercultural statement. A Christian mother who rears her children, as Jesus says, is making a radically countercultural statement. He's going to talk about the responsibilities of Christian men and husbands as, as well. Christian men and women live different, radically different. And they do so because they believe something that is radically different. And on Father's Day, we're going to look at Titus' instructions, Paul's instructions to Titus regarding men. But today on Mother's Day, we're going to look at the instructions he gave to countercultural wives and moms. And we need our God's help as we do. So let's go to him, and then we'll look at verses 3 through 5 together. Our Father, we come to you a bit scared, I admit. Because this is completely beyond us. To live in a fallen world and a fallen culture that is increasingly hostile not just different from increasingly hostile to that which you have told us in Scripture. But Lord, we need not fear because you are with us, and because this is your world, and because you have called us to this place for such a time as this. And so, Lord, we move forward with confidence, advancing your cause in your world. But Lord, we need your aid every step of the way, and we need your aid in these sacred moments. As we look at your instructions for sisters in the Lord to make their countercultural counter statement on your behalf in the world that you've taught, called us to serve. So we ask for your aid and your wisdom and open hearts and clear minds. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. On the back of your program, there is an outline. And in the outline... I say Christian women should do three things. They should be three things. The first one is this. Christian women should be consistent. Now, why do I say consistent? It's because of what is in verse 1 of chapter 2. Titus, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. When it says what is in accord... It's what is fitting with sound teaching or what is consistent with sound teaching. So now you are to teach what is fitting, what flows from, what follows from sound doctrine. In the King James, I used to read this as a kid. And in the King James it says, you must teach the things which become sound doctrine. And I used to look at the word become sound doctrine and think it meant the way we normally use the word become. Something becomes something else. It, it turns into. So teach the things that will turn into sound doctrine. But it actually is the other way we use the word become. Teach things that are becoming of rather than are unbecoming. Things that fit. Things that are in accord with. Things that are, in the word that I had you fill in in the outline, things that are consistent. The Bible's pattern of doctrine is given, and then practice flows from it. And you see this throughout Scripture. 
in the letters that Paul wrote to individuals like Titus and Timothy, but also to churches, they were often divided into a couple of major sections. One is teaching, and then there is, there is practice that flows from that, that's consistent with that, in accord with fitting with the truth. And what is it that is consistent? Well, it says, teach the older men in verse 2. And the older women in verse 3. And encourage younger men in verse 6. Now notice, you've got the older men, the older women, the younger men. And there's one group that he's not told to do anything directly with. And that's the younger women. Rather, in verse 3, you, Titus, teach the older women. And then verse 4 says they train the younger women. Now why is that? That is simply, friends, a matter of propriety. This man, Titus, is to be very careful in his relationships with younger women. He can teach the older men. He can teach the younger men. He can teach the older women very directly. But you teach the older women to train the younger women. Now, this is just a quick aside, but an important aside. The Bible is big on the idea of propriety in relationships with members of the opposite sex. And if you aspire to be a godly man or a godly woman in any position that God places you, much less if you aspire to be a deacon or a deacon's wife or a pastor or a pastor's wife, you must be extremely careful in the way you go about your relationships with members of the opposite sex. And so Paul tells them. Tells Titus, identify older women and teach them so they can train. Now, just think about that. (laughs) Titus, identify older women. No, you first. (laughs) I'm supposed to categorize these women into older and younger? And the word older here is about, it's actually about age. One writer said this, the ancient teacher Hippocrates divided life into seven categories by age. The word he used to describe the sixth category is the very word that Paul uses here for older. His list was for ages of men, but the same word is used in our passage for men and women. Now, Hippocrates doesn't tell us the precise age level, but it appears to be that they are those who are over 60. And those men are the gray beards of the flock of God. And it's the same word that he uses for the older women, for those who would be called in the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, the mothers of Israel. So there are these seven ages for men, and the sixth one is this word for those over 60. Same word now for women. Now someone suggested that there are also seven ages of women. First infant, then little girl, then teen, then young woman, then young woman, then young woman, and then young woman. (laughs) Now we laugh, but the truth is we have to be really careful, don't we? And I know I do. As I talk to ladies and you you talk about age, it is just so delicate. And let me just say, sisters, too delicate. 
for us. And I'd like to talk about that for a little bit. There is such a thing in the Bible as the noble station of an older woman. And despite the fact that age is frowned on and is to be avoided at all costs in our culture, it's not the case in the Bible at all. It was not only fine, but very good to be an older woman. Our culture tries to preserve youth. <laughs> I mean, how many surgeries and nips and tucks can Joan Rivers have? <laughs> but from a Christian perspective, it's good to be older. And the question for us is, do we recognize why in the Bible it's fine, but in our culture it's not? I'm going to talk about that for a bit. Are we going to believe the Bible? Or are we going to believe the words of that great theologian, John Cougar Mellencamp? And oh yeah, life goes on. Long after the thrill of living is gone. Really? You get older and the thrill of living is, is to be gone? Why is it okay in the Bible to be older but not in our culture. Hear this. If this is all there is, <laughs> then does it not follow that I want to preserve it as long as I can? If this is, this existence is all there is, then preserve it as long as you can. But the truth is the Christian woman and man can resist the allure of perpetual youth because we believe in the defeat of death. Because Jesus is raised, it's okay to grow old. It's okay to move toward, toward death. Forget it's okay to move toward death. Paul said, it's better by far for me to depart and be with the Lord. Do you see, friends, that there is this cultural perspective that is based upon the fact that there is no sure future hope, confident expectation, that we often buy into in the way that we glorify youth and try to hang on to it. We therefore have to be so careful as we talk about aging when the Bible blesses age. My dear mom aged gracefully. And I thank God for that. I remember as a boy looking at my mom and thinking about how different she was from most of my friends' moms. And, you know, I was just dumb and young, and I didn't, have, I didn't know what Titus II meant or any of that. I just knew that my mom was secure in who she was. And she didn't feel like she had to look 17 or 27 or 37. She was fine to be my dad's wife while he was alive and to be my mother and my brother's mother for as long as God gave her. Because she knew she had her time here and she had her blessed station in life given to her by an all-wise and good God and there was the reward of Jesus and his presence in the end. And she lived that way. 
so older ladies. I'll say that freely without pointing anyone out. But older ladies, you can and must teach the younger women and train the younger women. And you say, you may say to yourself, what do I have to teach them? What do I have to give them? Every older woman here has something to give to the younger women. Every every last one of you. You have seen life just by virtue of your experience. You have seen life and you have experienced life. Now, that may have been mostly negative. That may have been mostly positive. But you've experienced life. And you can be a great blessing to a younger woman by imparting to her the lessons that you have learned, whether negatively or positively. And further, you can be a great blessing to these younger women because you show your confidence in being who you are. Not being afraid of growing older in Jesus. And for you younger ladies, by definition, you do not have the experience of the older ladies. I often say experience is the best teacher, especially if it's somebody else's experience. And that's why the the Bible gives us instructions from those who have been around the block in the pages of Scripture and then says, talk to those that you know who have been around the block and learn from them and their experience. Could you, Kimmy, can you get me a, can you get, do you have a hanky or something? Thank you. You need the wisdom of the experience of the older women. This means this. Younger ladies, older ladies, you must hang around with each other. I actually have a hanky. I just did this to get you up front to say what a precious mama she is on Mother's Day. No, I'm lying. I didn't have a hanky ready. (laughs) But she is a precious mama. More about that later. And so older women and younger women need to interact together. This is one of the reasons you are part of a church that tries its very best to have intergenerational ministries. To not segregate our congregation along age and demographic lines any more than is necessary to help young marrieds and single adults. We have ministries for that. But we only have you apart as much as is necessary to help you in your station in life. We want younger men to be with older men and younger women to be with older women. And young women, let me say to you, now you ought to aspire to develop the character that's described here in Titus 2 as early as you can. Young women, those of you under 60 who should aspire to one day be able to teach by your godly example those who will be coming of age. You should aspire young women to be one whose Christian maturity is beyond her years. In verse 4, we're told that the, the older women will be able to train the younger women. That's the word. The word there is train the younger women. It is not just tell the younger women, but it's to train them by modeling and by example. 
So Titus will tell the older women, he will teach them, but they in turn will train by modeling an example the younger women. And so Christian women should be consistent. But secondly in your outline, they should be pious. Pious. Verse 3, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. And that's why I had you fill in pious. Because that word that's translated reverent in verse 3 is a word that referred in biblical times to priestly activity. It was used of women who served as priestesses in heathen temples. It was used of those who engaged in religious activity. And now it's being applied to domestic life. Being a wife, being a mother, tending to a home. And it's said to be something that's reverent. Something that's religious, has sacred importance to it. What we're being told here is that all of life, friends, including mundane, regular, domestic life in the home, is to be seen as sacred. Ladies, you have been called to your station in life. And it's a sacred responsibility, a religious responsibility before God. Christian women then are to be pious. And in that pious reverent devotion to the God who has called them, we're given a number of characteristics that they should display with regard to themselves, to their husbands, to their children, and to their homes. First of all, with regard, in your outline, to themselves. Verse 3 says, Older women are to be reverent in the way they live. What does that look like? Well, it looks like women who are not slanderers, or addicted to much wine, but who teach what is good. Not slanderers. Slander means literally to talk down. It's often coupled with gossip, talking about stuff that's none of your business. And then talking about that stuff that's none of your business, you're talking down the people about whom you're speaking. Now this is given to to women, although certainly it is something that is a temptation for all of us, but a special temptation here because... Slander and gossip are a hazard that goes with time. If you are called to be busy at home, as we will see in verse 5, then there goes with that the temptation to use that time unwisely. That's the reason verse 5 says to be busy at home. Busy at home rather than a busy body. So not to be slanderers, to be in control of her tongue, but also control of her appetites, not addicted to much, to much wine. Now this not only applies to alcohol, and here's a really good way not to be addicted to much wine. Don't drink. And so I, I recommend not drinking. I don't drink. I never have, and I'm not going to. And we don't have it in our house. And a really cool way for you not to be addicted to much wine and not have to worry about whether or not when things start to go south, because you decided to nip here and nip there and be a social drinker, now things are going south, and I'll repair to a bit more of that. 
You don't have to worry about that. In control of appetites, but not just alcohol. Addictions to other things would qualify, including drugs. And not just necessarily illegal drugs. Now, I don't, I'm not a pharmacist, I'm not a doctor. And even when I, if I ever finish that paper and, they, and, and, I, and I'm actually a doctor of ministry, as they say, I won't be a doctor who can do you any good. So I'm not a doctor or a pharmacist. I, I can say this. Friends, be very careful about the, the pill-popping culture that we are in that will prescribe things very quickly that can have great side effects, great side effects even mentally. And over the years, I've had occasion to deal with men and women and even children. And there's something just, they're not quite there. It's a very intelligent person, but they're not quite there. And then I find out that there are a whole host of drugs that have been prescribed. Sometimes painkillers and so on. Be very careful. Under control in our tongues and in our our appetites. And with regard to themselves and their reverent way of life, we're also told that they need to be, in verse 2, self-control. Excuse me. In verse 5. Look at the first part of verse 5. To be self-controlled and pure. The older women will teach the younger women to do that, but they can only train them to do that if, of course, they are that way themselves. Self-controlled and pure. Now, why are those two coupled together? Self-controlled, pure. Here's why. Because it's referring primarily to sexual purity. Being under control sexually, being pure in thought and in heart sexually. Now, in this day, if a woman was not under control, she would go from house to house, and that is why... Paul tells Titus, teach them to love their own husbands. Be busy at their home. It's sexual purity. Now, you say, how does that apply to me? Ladies, older and younger. Fantasizing. We have a media that presents other men to you, if you're married, other than your husband, for you to feast your eyes upon and fantasize about for you to make comments about what a hunk he is or whatever you say. And you're to have eyes and a heart if you are married for one man. Your husband is to be a one-woman man and you are to be a one-man woman. So pious with regard to themselves. Secondly, in your outline, pious, reverent with regard to their husbands. The older women can train the younger women, verse 4, to love their husbands and to love their children. And when it says to love them, it's the word for for sacrificial love. It's not not romantic love, although that's certainly involved in the husband and wife relationship as well it should be. But here it's talking about the sacrifice and the service that is rendered to their husbands. They're to love them and they are to be subject to them, according to verse 5 be subject to their husbands. When we looked at Ephesians chapter 5, we we looked at the command in verse 22 of Ephesians 5, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. 
First Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, same thing. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Place yourselves under the authority of your husbands in the home. Now, for sake of time, I'm not going to repeat what we said there. So I refer you to that sermon. If you need to review it, it's on, the, it's on our website. But I will just say this here, that the reason that women are specifically told submit in Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3 and now to subject themselves to their husbands here in Titus chapter 2 is because it goes all the way back to the garden and this is the particular problem women are going to have in their relationships with their husbands. Husbands are also told to submit, just not as often. (laughs) And the reason they're not told as often is because they have another particular problem which is failing to love, lovingly lead their wives. And that's what they are commanded to do. So love them. Serve sacrificially in subjection to them. See in your outline, these are women who are pious with regard not only to their husbands, but also to their children. Verse 4 says, love their husbands and children. It literally says, love their husbands and love their children. So the command is, love both. The children are not just thrown in as an added thought. Direct your sacrificial service to your husbands and direct your sacrificial service to your children as well. That's given specifically to you ladies. There's a reason for that. God has made you ladies different than the men. You are the nurturing gender. God designed you that way. And if you have children in the home, You are to so arrange your life, your schedule, such that you are serving sacrificially for the benefit of those God-given children. Indeed, Christian women should be pious with regard to themselves and their husbands and their children, but also with regard to their homes. Verse 5 says, Older women, train the younger women to be busy at home. Since you are at home, and that's the assumption that you will have much of your time at home, when you are at home, do not be idle. Be busy. Busy at home. Now, you say, do, is, can I have a job? Is, is it unbiblical for me to have a job outside of the home? As I understand it, the answer to that is no. It's not unbiblical. It's not wrong for you to have a job outside the home. It is wrong for your job or anything else to take the place of the priority of your home. Now, how do I know that you can have activity outside of the home? You ladies know on Mother's Day there's this one woman in the Bible that you all hate. It's the Proverbs 31 woman. And if you read Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31, about the virtuous woman who can find her price is far above rubies, and then you're given the description of this woman, and you say, this is superwoman. And she really is. But part of her superwoman activities is she goes, she has all these domestic responsibilities and she cooks and she cleans and she does all that stuff. And then it says she goes out and considers a field and she buys it. She's into real estate. Andrea Capanola is a Proverbs 31 woman. She's a real estate agent. But it is to be your primary place of responsibility at home and when at home which should be regular and often busy. And that's combined in verse 5 with busy at home and being kind. Now, why are those two put together? This kindness probably refers to using that home that you 
are busy in for hospitality to others. The Bible regularly commends, even commands, being hospitable. And so being willing to open that home for the purpose of helping, helping others. Christian women should be consistent and pious, and then lastly and quickly, should be purposeful. Because the end of verse 5 says this, All of this is to be done in the training by older women to the younger women for this purpose, so that no one will malign the word of God. Christian women should be purposeful. And what is that purpose? To be countercultural. To show something quite different from the prevailing culture. Two, in the way you are devoted to God and the God who has placed you where you are. In devotion, if you are married to your husband, if you have children, to your children. In the way you comport yourself. In the things and activities to which you give yourself. In all of that, you are seeking to be evangelistic. Because others see that. And if you're going to be on a mission from God, purposeful, then what others see and think about us as Christians matters. So that no one will malign the Word of God. So let me sum it up this way. What should you be like? Well, I can say, and I'm very blessed to say, that you should be like mom, my mother-in-law. Be like Kathleen Croft. I'm blessed to have married into a family where I can call her mom, and she models the stuff that we're talking about here. Praise God. Thank you, mom. We have other ladies here who do the same thing. Thanks be to God for you. Younger ladies... Look at those ladies as your heroes. Be like them. Or for you younger ladies, be like Kim. I was in the doghouse and now I'm out. I was not. Kim's had the benefit of having the model of her mom and now she's modeling that to to our girls as, as well. And I say that, yes, because I obviously know something about these dear ladies. But that could be said about a number of you ladies as well. But all of, all of you ladies need to aspire to be what the Bible says in Titus chapter 2. And you need to look to women who God in His grace has blessed to approximate this. And notice it's God in His grace who does that. To give you models of instruction and example for you. And lastly, look at the title in your outline. You see the title is Image is Everything? You see that that's a play on words. In our youth culture, image is everything. Stay young. At all costs. But you do all of this so that no one will malign the Word of God. Because the image you present as God's ambassador, being countercultural in your home, is a major means that God uses to be a light in darkness in an increasingly decadent culture. Ladies, God has given you a very important and blessed position in life. May God grant you the grace through Jesus, only through Jesus can you do this. Grant you the grace through Jesus and the instruction of His Word and the example of other ladies and the presence of His Spirit to joyfully and successfully fulfill your God-given calling.
And that's what I have as your take-home truth at the bottom of the, the page. To fulfill your God-given calling. Let's pray together. Father, as we said earlier, this is a task beyond us. It is beyond any of these ladies to do this in their own strength. We need your wisdom. We need your strength. We are living the way that you have called us with forces arrayed against us in an increasingly hostile culture. And I pray, therefore, for the teenage girls that you have given us. And I pray that they are being instructed from your word and they are looking to models of piety, reverence, even now. I pray for the young women who are married and they have children and they they know they need help. Help them to look to models given in Scripture, but models given in their own life and the, the sphere of our own church family for help and for example. I pray for all of the ladies in our church, whatever age, and whether they have children or whether they are married, that they will see the importance of their example and what you have called them to. And I pray for the older women particularly. Help them to see how blessed it is to be older in Jesus. That they have a home to look forward to far beyond the home that they've prepared here. And help them to be an aid to younger women who aspire to be godly and show Jesus in their domestic relationships. Lord, we grant all of this to you and we ask you to help us with it. In Jesus' name, amen.